any pregnancy is more difficult than we give it credit for. But I definitely was really humbled by that. But I didn't have this sort of ideology that I should just go crush it being pregnant because having two was enough of a reality check that I let the whole thing be a reality check, which in hindsight should be for anybody, right? Like it should be its own process. But I'm of the mindset where I'm like, if I just try hard enough, I can probably make this work for me in this way. And by the universe giving me two babies at once, it's like, "Mm, no, you're going to have to let that be your leader. You don't get to be in charge here. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Startup Parent Podcast. This is the show where we get to talk to working parents, entrepreneurs, and business leaders about what it looks like to raise kids while also building companies. If you're in the thick of it with your career or your business and you've got little ones at home, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Today's guest is Micah Burhart. She is the author of the book, More, Life on the Edge of Adventure and Motherhood. She is a professional climber, an ice climber, a social entrepreneur, an author, and the mother of twins. Micah is the founder and executive director of Legato, which is an international organization that helps secure thriving futures for both the people and the places they call home. Her book is really special. It is a series of audio notes that she took throughout the journey as soon as she discovered that she was pregnant. And what she chronicles, all of the different swirls of emotions that you can have all at the same time, feeling uncertain and scared and confused and overwhelmed, all of it. As you'll hear on this episode, I cried right away just on the first page of the book. So today we're going to talk about the hard stuff. We talk about the emotional journey of motherhood, the highs and the lows, and the importance of creating space to talk about all of the complexity of these emotions and the hard parts that are sometimes glossed over. Micah shares how her experience of being pregnant with twins was a reality check that helped her let go of preconceived notions about motherhood. And one of the things I really appreciate about this episode is that Micah talks about how do you reconcile this insatiable desire to work on something you care about while also becoming a mother? And how do you decide whether or not to become a parent in the first place when you are at the peak of your career in a male-dominated industry and pregnancy will disrupt and change and limit what you might be able to do? Take a listen. One of the things that I really love doing is looking for other examples of success. The news media is constantly profiling these huge, enormous companies that sell for hundreds of millions of dollars. And we see all this noise about the size of the round, the size, the amount of money. But what about examples of success that more people can actually relate to? Selling a company for $1 million, $5 million, $10 million, this can be a life-changing amount of money for people, even though it'll never get profiled in the news. If you want examples of success that you can actually relate to, I love They Got Acquired. It is a website all about founders who have sold their company for six or seven figures. It's the kind of exit that's usually done under the radar, but they're so achievable. They're so much more desirable for so many people. They share tips in their newsletter to help you build a better business, to show you what it looks like and what to expect during the sale process, and all the things you maybe didn't even think to ask. The tips they share can help you build a better business. So if you're interested in selling your company, they are a one-stop shop for helping entrepreneurs with their exits. Get on their email list at theygotacquired.com newsletter. Hi. 
Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to have Micah join me. Micah, thanks for joining Startup Parent. I'm so jazzed to be here having listened to this podcast uh, along the way. The book that you wrote, I started crying on the first page, so you should know. (laughs) You should know that this is a really important book. And then I took a screenshot. I sent it to a friend. I'm like going to deliver a book to a friend of mine because what I long for, what I need so much in this motherhood journey is someone else who says, I'm terrified. I don't know if I want to become a parent. Have I done this crazy thing? Am I okay? Like, who's going to help me? All of those pieces. And like you did that just right on the first page. So tell us about the journey of this book, who you're writing to, what you're writing about. First of all, I love what you just said, that it made you cry on the first page, not because I'm here to inflict pain, but because that means it matters, right? And I think like that's the piece because everything you just said, Sarah, is how I felt. I was like, wait a second, I feel like I'm ping-ponging around in a million different emotions, but the only narratives available to me are to either be completely jazzed on this or to be in postpartum depression. Where is the other narrative? And how do we be brave enough and create the spaces for ourselves and our friends to have that? Because you have the biggest highs and the biggest lows and not because you're imbalanced, because I think that's actually what we're all going through. We're just really bad at talking about it. So those are the conversations that I think we need to start having. And I think also, I mean, so to your question of like, what is this book and how did it come to be? I wrote this book by accident. I found out that I was pregnant and I started recording audio journals to my, at that point, kid. (laughs) And then I found out it was kids and it was twins to sort of say like, oh, hi, I don't have this. And here's all the ways I don't have this. And here are all the ways that I'm scared because I needed a place to put it all. It felt like that was where it belonged. And then it took me three years of doing this, jotting notes while nursing the kids in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep, writing myself emails that I'd wake up in the morning and think, what was that about, right? <laughs> like, where was that hot mess of emotion with lots of really bad spelling? <laughs> like, what's going on? And then saying, this is a story, right? This is not primary source data to go back through, that actually the emotional journey is the story because it's the thing that I believe that we need to start being able to tell ourselves and our communities so that we can all be in this better together. Yeah. You know, you hear all these tropes, all these cliches, like, oh, it's all worth it. Or it's like the greatest love of your life or insert platitude. And to me, sure. Right. Like that might be one of the million data points that I get to collect. And it might be the overarching narrative, but it might not be. But I'm really interested in those little data points, the everyday journeys. And there's one that stands out to me that you wrote about. And I think it was, there's some resentment towards your husband right away when you got pregnant. Wait, you still get to go climbing and I don't. Is there going to be payback? Like, am I going to get to go climbing more later? Just those feelings. Because I can imagine that every single person listening, and I'm not going to put words in your, if you're not feeling this, listeners, that's totally fine too. But so many people listening can have that feeling of like, yeah, yeah, my body changed and his didn't, or I didn't have somebody around me or whatever that feeling is, which is a valid and real feeling. And the moments when they happen, that's not your be all end all feeling for four years, but the moment it comes in, it's very real. And if we don't acknowledge it and we don't make a safe place for it, then there's all the shame around that. It's like, oh, I'm a bad person because I felt like that. But actually it's not, you're just going through your process. And that's the thing that I became really interested in, right? Because again, 
if you write something four years afterwards, that's when we have all those platitudes because everything gets fuzzed out. And it's like, oh yeah, but that was like largely okay versus saying in the moment. I mean, I think about this all the time with sleep training my kids. And it was a God awful process for me to sleep train my children and especially my son. I had one great sleeper and I had one kid who had a hard time. And had I just had my daughter, I'd been like, all you people complaining about sleeping, just get over it. Like it's not that hard. Totally, totally, totally. It'd be like, you guys are just total wusses. And instead, I had this duality and I was like, whoa, wow, okay, this is a night and day experience. And it was heart wrenching and it hurt and it never went away and we could never quite get it. And then he gets sick. And, you know, and I'm like, no one's talking about this. And for me, why are we not talking about it? Because I'm experiencing this. And then it felt like I was in this echo chamber. And I think oftentimes shame gets associated with that. And so for me, it's saying, no, I'm stepping to the side of that. And that's been the most incredible experience I've had in the past month since the book has been out is people responding to me and they're like, yeah, like you're in my head. You talked about things that have been in my head. And I'm like, good. There is a place where this lands and where we have needed to be heard. That's exactly it. <laughs> sleep training. Same. I have two. They're two years apart. They're not twins, but the same. We had one that was took to it really easily and one that really needed a different method. But just different needs. And you're like, oh, everyone's different. Some things work here. Some things work there. Some things don't work. Some things are great. And what you're hitting on too is the number one reason why I basically can't be in any Facebook groups for parents. Because all I see, all I witness is people shaming each other, jumping to conclusions, defending, just so many hurt feelings that that's missing the ability to hold space, to be like, yeah, what was your nuanced, specific feeling in this moment on this day, right? And it's okay if it's a really big, strange, difficult, weird, unusual feeling. We'll be there with you in that. And we're not going to leap to conclusions about the fact that this is how you feel all the time. It's okay to absolutely loathe parenting sometimes. It's okay to not like being pregnant. It's okay to resent your partner. It's okay to be frustrated at your kids, right? And the underbelly of this is like, it's okay to be a human being with feelings. Yeah. And the irony is that's what we're teaching our kids how to do, right? Like we are all in this space of trying to teach our kids and this is, you know, kind of this brave new world. It's certainly not how I was raised where you're like, all those emotions are welcome and I'm here to be at the, you know, to sit on the bench with you with all these emotions. But yet for ourselves, we're not giving ourselves that grace and we're not giving other parents that grace. And it's as if, if you admit that something is hard, then it's no longer great, but it's not a binary. Like both of those things can sit in the place at the same time, right? It's like, I can love doing this and know this is absolutely the thing that I would never give up in the world and I wouldn't trade. And I can say, Oh, in this moment, it is so darn hard to put my two children to bed and to have to have these mind-altering conversations at eight o'clock when I'm toast and I'm feeling frustrated and it's pushing my buttons. And I love them. <laughs> it's exactly the same as our kids, right? If we don't let our kids process the hard, they internalize it. It comes out in ways that makes them less resilient. Why are we doing that to ourselves? I think that's one of the reasons why so many marriages aren't ultimately resilient because we haven't created a space to talk about that stuff. It's like, just get in line, make it happen, go on date night, you'll be okay. And then people pop out the other side and they're like, we are so not okay. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And we're terrified of telling each other. Emotional literacy is something we're all learning, or many of us are learning. There's probably people out there who are phenomenal at it, right? I don't, I'm not going to lump everyone together. But I just notice in myself, oh, wow, this isn't something I was taught. And everyone's coming from a different 
model, but our parents' generations were taught so many things about hold it in, don't show your emotion, be a good little kid, behave, children should be seen, not heard, just all sorts of stuff where it's like hide. If we're carrying that through our adult lives, it's like, well, don't show people our emotions or I've just never learned. I've never learned how to share that part of myself. And if you haven't learned how to do it, it's not pretty when you start doing it. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's complicated and it's icky and all these things. And that was for me such a big part of it because I had these two and a half year olds with all this red hot emotion and suddenly realizing that I didn't know how to handle those emotions, but yet I was supposed to be the leader and teaching them how to do this. And I'm like, well, this is A, who's in charge here? (laughs) And what I had to do is just get really honest with my kiddos and say, I'm learning with you and recognize that, you know, when I was that age, my parents' marriage was falling apart and they were going through, starting to go through a really rough divorce. So how could I have learned those things? So it's this adage that you don't know what you don't know until you don't know it, right? Like, there you are. I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) Like, who can, like, put a chip in me so I can just get this dialed? And like, no, you're going to have to stumble your way through this. And you're going to have to stumble your way through this with almost like three, two and a half year olds, yourself and your twins, managing your way through this if you want to make that step, right? You know, it's like, hello, now you're a triplet. Yes. (laughs) I truly believe just what you said. When you reach a friction point, there's something in you that's learning and growing. And you're like, oh, I'm three in this area of my life. Or I'm seven. Like, I haven't learned this yet. And now I'm learning alongside you. And look at us mucking through this. <laughs> yeah. Okay, wait. Tell us about your pregnancy journey. Tell us about some of those emotions and feelings, some of the stuff you captured in the book. To kind of set the scene, I am a professional climber. I was one before I was pregnant. I am still one now. So that kind of tells you a little bit about how things went. But also, I had been traveling all around the world, kind of finally at this moment for myself at the end of my 30s, where I was blending climbing with social entrepreneurship, with really having the pathway and the recognition. And it was awesome. And then I also had that decision in front of me to say, if I want to have kids, this is probably the time. This is probably the window and maybe at the end of the window. So I got pregnant and was surprised to find out that I was pregnant with twins, Um, had not been doing any IVF. I mean, other than the fact that I was 39, there wasn't anything that was driving toward that outcome. I was shocked by it. And I was also so darn scared because in my head, the narrative was I would maybe add a kid, basically like I would do an experiment in trying to get pregnant. And if I could get pregnant, I could be a mom. And if I couldn't get pregnant, I could stop thinking about it because it was exhausting to think about it all the time, right? To think about, are you going to do it? Are you not going to do it? To think about not thinking about it. All that stuff was just more than I could handle. So it's like, well, let's just get this over with and have be going on path A or path B. But instead I was like, oh, hidden path C, go forward with twins. (laughs) Yeah. And my pregnancy, the good thing is that I had to let go of any preconceived notions that I had about it because I had two babies in there and I was like, okay, it's going to be, it was hard. And I think any pregnancy is more difficult than we give it credit for, but I definitely was really humbled by that. But I didn't have this sort of ideology that I should just go crush it being pregnant because having two was enough of a reality check that I let the whole thing be a reality check, which in hindsight should be for anybody, right? Like it should be its own process. But I'm of the mindset where I'm like, if I just try hard enough, I can probably make this work for me in this way. And by the universe giving me two babies at once, it's like, no, you're going to have to let that be your leader. You don't get to be in charge here. Yes, yes. I remember you writing also about 
your toe and how it was like a toe injury that finally got you to, you're going back and forth and you're this professional climber. There's adventure after adventure after adventure waiting for you. And there's the next hike and the next training and the next. And I remember reading your 39 and I was like, oh yeah, she waited. So one question for you is how long did you spend thinking about motherhood? Do you remember what age you started? Have you always been thinking about it? What was that like? When I was a kid, I used to tell people I wanted to have eight babies and I had their names Mm. picked out and they were Betsy, Tracy, Tacy. I don't remember the last five, but I remember (laughs) Betsy, Tracy, and Tacy. Oh my God. And I like had all these stuffed animals and, you know, I want to have all these babies. And then I got into sports and I got like really into sports. I went to this Montessori school where we did not have girls teams and boys teams. We just had teams, but we were the only school that had that. So I would sometimes be the only girl out there playing basketball or on the floor hockey team that was like the top team and we're playing these groups of boys. And so being the only girl and being good at it was a source of pride for me from a very young age. And very early on when I translated that into wanting to be a professional climber, I never talked about wanting to be a mom. I never thought about it after that point because that was becoming feminine, right? Like it's like owning your identity as a woman in a way that felt like it would diminish my identity as an athlete. And I didn't understand that until recently. Like I would not have been able to articulate that 25 years ago, right? But now I'm like, oh yeah, when I was cutting through being in a very small minority of women in in the elite climbing community, I would go backwards if I talked about like, well, yeah, I want to be a mom. Thankfully, that's not happening now. Yeah, It's not entirely changed, but it's on its way. But I restricted myself and I even restricted like how I thought about it, how I talked about it to myself. And it was this thing is like, well, maybe one day I will. I mean, I remember going places and seeing kiddos and just being like, I don't even want to have anything to do with them because then people are going to think that I'm one of those mothering types. I'm not a mothering type. I have an agenda over here. I'll deal with mother. I'm not going to be a mothering type later. (laughs) So I have a lot of admiration for people who can play in both right now. And I do think, like you and I said, it's changing and it needs to change more. But for me, there was not this longing, but you know what would happen is if I had kiddos and I had friends' kids and I would like carry them around and I get a glimpse, I'm going to cry telling you this, and I get a glimpse of myself in the mirror with a kid, I would look at it and I'd be like, is this me? Do I need to do this? What does this look like? What does this feel like? And I can remember that in like bathroom mirrors with my friend Sarah's son, Mason, and just being like, oh, there you are. Do you want this? And like not really knowing what to do about that. Yeah. Oh, being confronted with that question of like, but wait, what do I want? Yeah. Is this part of it? Yeah. And how do I do it if that's what I want, right? What does that mean? (laughs) And what does that mean is going to change? I was very not clear on it. It's like, I never wanted to not have the option. Does that make sense, Sarah? Like I was never like, I will not have kids. So I wanted that option and then suddenly all things conflate and you're in your late 30s and it's like, well, if you want to have that option, you should probably figure that out. Hence the let's do a giant experiment that landed us with twins. (laughs) When did the conversation start about, okay, let's start talking about kids? It was actually as my husband and I were engaged. So we got engaged when I was 36 and it was around those conversations because I wanted to have the option, right? I was like, hey, I just want to make sure that we're not a done deal no, we're a no for now. And it wasn't actually clear. And I was thought, ooh, this needs to be clear before we get married, right? And not clear, but it was nuanced in this way. 
that's kind of classic for me. I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to say we're going to because I'm not ready for that. I just want to know that there's like a little wiggle room in there. <laughs> if we can be clear on the very vague wiggle room, then this is okay. <laughs> yeah, you're open to talking about this with me. Exactly. We're not making a decision, but there has to be like a path to go figure it out. So that's really when it started. But we weren't moving towards that in actuality. And I think one thing for Peter is that me not being sure made it hard for him to be sure. But then on the flip side of it, I eventually became more clear because of my toe, because of hurting my toe while climbing in Chamonix after being in Africa for three backpack trips and starting the year on the summit of Fitzroy in Argentina. And I was like, I'm going all in for climbing. I'm not going to have kids. And then I had this stupid toe injury. And I thought, really? This is the thing you're going to be all in for that a toe injury can make you not have? And that's what you're giving up motherhood for? Like, really? Just hold on. This makes no sense. But because I was the one who kind of moved us more certainly into trying that somehow I should be carrying that responsibility. And then also you're literally the one carrying the children. And I think that that skews some of these like gendered roles in it. Like even if you might've been more certain that you wanted to try it, you can change the rules at any time. Why can't we change the rules at any time? Because we had no idea what we were getting into. You have no idea what you're getting into when your kid becomes seven and like they have their whole host of things or they go through puberty. It's like, no, I'm sorry, that thing that we agreed to no longer stands, not in like a bad you suck way, but like, hey, time out, we're partners, let's reevaluate what's going on. Speechless in the best way because of so <laughs> many different moments you just said, because they're so important. One of the things you mentioned, you enter into this agreement with someone else, this idea, but it's this vast unknown. It's like, we found a new content. I don't want to use a colonialist metaphor, but <laughs> like we discover a new continent. We're like, let's go explore it. And like you get there and there's fire breathing dragons. You're not going to sit there and be like, well, since I agreed that I'm always the one in the front, I'm just going to, yeah. you might talk to your other people who are with you and be like, hmm, there are fire breathing dragons. We have found this thing. There are things here. What should we do about it? This is a strange metaphor, but <laughs> no. Well, I don't know. Children are pretty much fire breathing dragons. So <laughs> I, could, I think you picked that part aptly. <laughs> who should be where, when, and what are those kids? Do you have kids who have different needs than you would have thought about in your sort of frictionless planning world? Or did you not plan, but suddenly you just assumed roles without having dialogue about them? And I think that that's one of the trickier things about kind of I talk about it in the book quite a bit about how lonely it is to be a parent when you're partnered, which is such a wild thing to say because in theory, you're sharing this thing, but you're each in your own experience without a lot of connection points between the two of you because you're tired, because you're maxed out, but you're also not able to like change the terms. And I think that that can make it feel really, really lonely and really, really isolating, even if every night you're going to bed next to the same person. You're sharing a space of unconsciousness, but your ship's passing yeah. in the night too, right? It's like, yeah. did you buy the diaper cream from Amazon or whatever? Yeah, These are totally. the stimulating conversations or adventures you'd had years prior. Can you say more about that, about loneliness? What did it look like for you? I think for me, it ties into that part, Sarah, where we were talking about desperately looking for conversations about the realness and the 360 degrees of emotions that I was having where do I put this and who's willing to talk to me about this? Can I have that with my spouse? No, like we can't seem to talk about anything because we only have 10 minutes to talk and we need to talk about other things because they're higher priorities. Can I have that with a friend of mine? Oh, that person doesn't feel safe. I just felt incredibly 
isolated in that and then eventually learned I wasn't, like found my way to people who I could have those conversations with and then found my way through writing this book. And it's in the experience of sharing that book that I've just been flooded with people saying like, yeah, I'm on that team, right? Like I have those 360 degrees of emotion too. And I think that so many of us do, but we don't know. I mean, gosh, you know what it's like. I mean, here you and I are having a 75-minute conversation. How many 75-minute conversations did you have when your kids were little with uninterrupted where you could talk about what's really going and then kind of test out the waters and then be like, oh, that felt kind of safe. Maybe I'll go a little further along and see if this person can have this type of conversation. And I think that if we can show up for each other and show up for strangers and for people who are newly meeting and sort of be like, hey, I'm here. I'm here in the realness. I'm here for all the good. I think that we could do each other better service. There are, I know, how many 75-minute conversations do you? None. Like, you don't. (laughs) Yeah. I run a community for new moms, and we use this audio chat app. And the reason is so you can have that 75-minute conversation over the course of the week where you get to like talk for five minutes, but you get to stay there with someone because you can't, you don't have 75 minutes. Like someone's diaper has exploded within 10. So, and what it is, is it's in the moment. That's such a great thing because what it lets you do is have the hotness in the moment and just be like, yeah, I have all this exactly, and I have all this love. Like here's this little being who I love so much, but who just did this thing. And I'm really conflicted because five hours later, you can't recreate all that hotness. But in that moment, I have this you know, one of my really good friends, like we have this thing that if one of us texts and says, I need five minutes, it's like we move heaven and earth to do it. It's like, what do you need? Right? Because you need to just say like, this is too much for me to hold by myself. And I need someone else to tell me that I've got this and I'm okay. Not because we're about to go off the cliff, but because that is life, right? Like there's nothing wrong with you. If you feel like that, it means that you are actually owning your humanness. Yes. And emotionally, you're about to go off the cliff. Yeah. You're spicy, you're hot, you're whatever it is. I know those moments. So I'm feeling shivers right now because there's just those moments that happen in parenting when you're totally overwhelmed. You know, I was lugging a bag of garden soil in from the car and like it was falling. And then my kid was like, carry me, you know, and he's 50 pounds and this garden soil's 30 pounds. And then I'm sweating and I didn't put a belt on. And so my jeans are slipping down and it's 86 degrees in New York. And like, everything's not working, then my glasses are falling off my face, so I can't read. And it's just a little moment when like the six and a half year old is like, mom, I didn't like it when you and you're like, (laughs) inside, you're just like, I can't. I am full. I am totally full. (laughs) Right. And then on top of that, you're exerting the energy to be like, all right, I'm regulating and processing my emotions. I am meeting the six year old where they are because their prefrontal cortex is not even developed. I need to throw this dirt on the ground without dropping my child. I need to pull my pants up, right? Something needs to happen. And yeah, that's when you text a friend and you're just like, I need five minutes to just metaphorically or actually scream. Yeah. Or someone to hold witness to the absurdity of all those things going together. And I think that ties back to the loneliness because you're like, holy cow, is anybody else going through this? And if we all are doing it, this is crazy. It's like that thing and it's on repeat, it's on repeat. And if you can have the lightness, it's wonderful because just in your retelling of that, you're like, oh, cause she knows what this is like. And then it doesn't feel as isolating. And you're like, oh yeah, yeah. That's what that story is versus if it's constantly happening to yourself and you don't have any place to put it, I think it can feel really isolating and it can start feeling somewhat, it's like, am I okay? Is it okay that I'm having all these emotions? Again, metaphors, but you become like lots of sound in an empty room, just 
ricocheting all over the place. And you're like, I just need someone to put like a couch and some carpet in here so I can invite a friend in here and we can like take the noise down a little bit. And also what happens during those moments is like a neighbor might walk by and say something like, oh, you're so strong or enjoy it while it lasts. And you're just like, what? (laughs) Come pick up this child. (laughs) It's always the best. Yes. Oh, the days are long, but the years are short. So just remember that or something on on this moment. And you're like, this won't last forever. And you're like, thanks. Yeah. Like talk to me about the moment. And I mean, I feel like that is something that you know, my spouse and I have been working on at night. A lot of times I get a lot of the more of the emotional regulation pieces that happen around bedtime. And I come out of, you know, like the dark room and I'm kind of bleary eyed. The kids are six and a half now. And, and I'm like, I just want somewhere to put it. I just like need to take the ball of emotion and sort of say like, I look at all the things I just went through, right? I had a conversation about all these different things and then was asked for yet another ice pack. And then, you know, was you know told mama that was the way you said, yes, look at the ice pack was too hard for me. Like, can you do a take two on that mama? And you know, it's like, okay, here I am. But to just go out and pretend it didn't happen, to just go out and to be like, talk about something else, that feels alienating. And it's like, how do we have these spaces with our partner is the thing that I've become really interested in where we can share that versus internalizing it or just doing it to a friend. Like, how do you have it be safe with a partner where it doesn't raise their defenses because they weren't the one in the room, where you're not on the offensive? That becomes really interesting to me. Oh, yes. We have two things, Alex and I. One is like very who does bedtime. And sometimes one of us will walk out of the bedroom like bedtime's not done. And it's this wild eyed panic look of like, I'm done. I'm out. I'm done. I'm out. Like you've just been broken. And the other one, when we see that, we're like, got it. And we slide right into the room and we're like, all right, kids, the light is going out now. You know, it's just backup, that backup sometimes where it's like, oh, tonight they broke me. But then also when we have those conversations, one of the phrases we use is charge and activation. So sometimes when Mm. I'm dumping a bunch of things and I'm explaining something to him, he starts to get activated and he'll be like, whoa, 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 I'm getting too activated because I need somewhere to like, you know, in the electricity metaphor, I need somewhere to ground. I need somewhere to put it and put it into the ground. But sometimes all I do is, it's like a hot potato and I just like toss him fire and now we're both burning. And yeah. so figuring out that nuance of like, how do we, right? Because it'll be different people at different time, get it out of us, allow it to process out. I'm with you. Yeah, it's the grounding. That's really interesting because that's that moment. Because if you pretend it's not in there, you still have that charge. You're not getting grounded. If you're just, well, I'll just take a couple deep breaths. It's like sometimes you just need to be like, I need to actually have that ground. It's witness. For me, it's about bearing witness to it. And I think that's really how this book was written is I'm just like, I need a place to put this. I need a place to put this. I even say it in the afterward, like, so it didn't burn me and it didn't burn me and us and our family. I had to find a place to put all this. And that became the book and all the love. Like the book's not just like this rage. It's very much about the confluence of it all. But also you don't get to selectively choose your emotions as somebody really wise has said before us. I forget who but you don't just get to pick out joy and love. The ability to feel all emotions, it means you have the ability to feel the fullness of the love. So it's like, (laughs) SOL, you know, enjoy all of them. Here's the buffet. We'll be right back. (laughs) 
Are you curious what it would look like to sell your business? Thinking about selling a business can be super intimidating and overwhelming. How do you do it? Where do you find a buyer? What do you need to know? Do you need a lawyer? How much should you sell it for? If you're going through this buying process for the first time, check out They Got Acquired. TheyGotAcquired.com is a place where they share stories of founders who have sold their company, they give you advice for doing it well, and they walk you through the process, especially if you are a first-time seller. Go check it out at TheyGotAcquired.com, and if you are curious about it, go to TheyGotAcquired.com slash curious. Okay, we're back. I want to touch on two things. One was the loneliness again. You said something about that. And then also you said really quickly, you're like, oh, and then I found people to talk to. And I wrote down how. <laughs> yeah. But first, okay, the loneliness piece, you said something I think was in the foreword or the introduction where you said what I wanted was my mom, but not right now. Grandma, it was, I want to be with my mom when she's going through this too. Like, I want to know what it was like for her. And that profound sense of loss, that disorientation of like, wait, okay, this huge thing is happening, but where am I? And like, who's done this? Who's helping me? Who's supporting me? Who's done this before? Where is that? That really, I think that's why I cried on page one, was that. Yeah, well, and it was... I had just this insatiable ache for it because she was a working mom, because also the difficulty of it and knowing that it imploded my mom and my dad's relationship, but I wanted it to do the opposite. I wanted to be married and have it make me stronger. And it's like, not how did you do this so I can do it differently, but I just wanted a lifeline. Like I wanted just to be like, have her on speed dial, but you can't have your parent when they were becoming a parent on speed dial. And that became this Thing that I wanted to give to my kids. Because if they feel anything like that, they can read this book when they're going through the parenting journey and be like, yeah, my mom also felt all the feels. I would love to know that. Like even yesterday, it was hot out and my kids had to have like sandals. And I'm like, I should bring them sandals because I didn't bring them to school. And I'm like, did my mom think about that? How did she do that when she was at the office? What would happen? It's like this constant thing in my head is like, what was that like when I was little? Well, you're SOL on that one because you're not gonna be able to find it. <laughs> but I think to your point about like, how did I find people? I think a couple different ways. I became very focused on finding people who I could talk to about the most in my Venn diagram and also excited for people who I could talk to about a segment of it. I was nursing twins and I had to find people who I could talk to about nursing twins because going to boob group with a bunch of people nursing one baby was not that helpful for me. But then the People who I bonded with around nursing twins, one woman in particular was amazing, and she also wasn't going back to work. So suddenly I couldn't have the conversation about what it meant to be doing that with. So I would find these little pockets and say, oh, this is where I can talk about the complexity and the nuance. And thank goodness I had a lot of that going on with all the different refractive things that I was trying to do. Or there's actually the woman who told me about your podcast was a woman I met at a social entrepreneur fellowship, the Malago fellowship that we both had. So she has little kids and she's running this amazing organization out of Columbia and I'm growing Legato. And we had this moment of like talking about both being like female founders and entrepreneurs while having little kids. And I was like, oh, thank goodness. Like, look at you. It's like you become almost like gluttonous when you find those connections. You're like, yay. <laughs> totally. Look at all the things that we can share and we can talk about in this really raw way. So I just would try to find those people in, in these different pockets. Yeah. I think that's something that's really, really hard to do. 
it's something I hear over and over again too, because you're working often full-time or more than full-time. You're trying to hang on to a job or an organization or start a company. You've got this huge workload. For many people, they haven't changed the workload at all. It gets harder. And then they have kids and they're like, oh, I didn't even realize, like I worked till midnight. I worked on Saturday and I don't have the support. And then there's also just finding other people like that. But you're working all the time. You're parenting all the time. So you don't have the bandwidth. Where does that come from? So definitely, like I've been the wild haired, frightened eyes person, like beelining at a conference being like, you have kids. (laughs) Just like, we have to share numbers. And I think that parents will get you. Parents will get you. But that's also been such an amazing part of the post-COVID world, right? I have so many more conversations now. Even yesterday, I was in like this really important meeting with a potential new funder that I've been trying to woo for a year and a half. In the meantime, I've called my doctor to get a different prescription for the strep medicine that I have to have my son on that way he's refusing to drink the pink stuff because it's disgusting. And I've like figured out we can get capsules But I'm like, I have to take this phone call. And I'm like, oh, of course, the doctor has not called me back. So I entered the conversation. I was like, hey, full disclosure, my kid has strep. I'm going to get a phone call at some point from the doctor and I'm going to like take it. I would not have done that before COVID. And the moment I said that, everyone's like, oh yeah, gotcha. Totally in the same boat. It's almost become this, I don't want to say like a cool card, but it's become this way of saying like, yeah, here's the deal. And I think that there's this new space for it that I really hope we don't let go of. And then that gives you these other pathways. So it's not just because someone just let it slip that they have kids. It's that we're all acknowledging like, hey, yeah, I'm sitting in this chair right now, but here's what's happening in my ecosystem. And it makes us all hopefully be more approachable and be a better net for each other, which then in turn that helps us advocate for all of the policy shift that have to be made so that working parents can actually do this with some semblance of success. Yes. Preach. I think it was Lauren Smith Brody, I think. She posted this Instagram where she was like, I'm part of a day-long conference and camp registration is at noon. So I asked them if I could have my laptop and pause in the middle of my panel so I could get my kids into camp. And because there's so many parents in the audience, she was able to like do it and then look up and be like, they're in. And everyone in the audience was like, because <laughs> we know, like we know we can loop people in and it's Six minutes. It's an internet connection. It's just having the space and the grace to be like, I do have to deal with this one thing. And that happens to be right in the middle of our call. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Okay. So speaking of working, I could talk to you for another two hours just about the parenting side and the feeling side, but the book, like in the words you choose, and I love that it's like audio voice to text, like this video audio diary check out this book. I'll put the link in the show notes. But now I want to ask you about, you're not just a professional climber married to another climber having twins. You also are running and building a tremendous organization. How many years into it were you when you got pregnant? Tell us about that journey. I began Legato with $11,000 and a wild idea in 2011 to go to Mount Namuli in Mozambique and to not only go climbing on Mount Namuli, but to find species new to science with scientists, not myself. So bring scientists up into vertical terrain and then also launch what I thought then was a conservation initiative with the local people living around this mountain and a Mozambican organization. And it was herky-jerky. 
to get started. I mean, it started in 2011, but that was just because we did a reconnaissance trip and it took us three years to raise the money and have the political situation stabilized enough to go back to the region. So really 2014 was liftoff. Began working with the Lomwe communities around Mount Namuli and realized pretty quickly that if we just stay in the conservation lane, we were going to be dead in the water because we had an agenda that wasn't matching the agenda of the people who were actually stewarding that incredible global resource and that rainforest. So started building and pivoting Legato so that we weren't just trying to deliver a conservation outcome after we'd done the first ascent, after I'd done a big film about it, all this stuff. But to say, if our job is to serve the needs of the local people here, what does that look like? So I'd started that journey. The film that I had shot about doing this climbing expedition had just come out when I got pregnant. So I went on a film tour when I was super pregnant, hustling for funding, growing belly, being told that I couldn't get on the plane when I was nowhere near at that point in my pregnancy, but my belly was so huge. They're like having to have a letter two months before the travel cutoff because I was like, no, they're twins in there and it's perfectly fine for me to fly right now. Get out of my way. Actually do get out of my way because I cannot pass you with this belly unless you get out of my way. <laughs> totally. And turning sideways is not going to change anything. Yeah, 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 exactly. And how do I fit in this bathroom with this? Oh, oh, good heavens. Yeah, exactly. So did this was growing legato and just saying, I'll figure it out and I'll have the babies and I'll be back on film tour and back raising money for this organization that I'm growing and that I'm pivoting once the kids are four months old. And I did that. Not that successfully, as I talk about in the book. I didn't have a plan B. I didn't have maternity leave. What I did have was this intense passion to build this organization and to keep making it better. Like I was insatiable in that. And for me to make it better meant making it more human. Like I couldn't turn that off in me when I was becoming more human by becoming a mom. And to make Legato more human, it meant that I had to be a better listener to the communities that I was supporting about all of the priorities they had. And I had to design Legato to their specifications, not to my specifications. And like take those steps and find the funders to support that. And it was insane. I mean, I found out about a grant the day I gave birth to the kids and I'm writing the potential funder that day because when you're the founder and suddenly there's a bunch of money on the table, you don't say like, sorry, I just had a baby, like, or two of them actually. You just are like, absolutely. Like I can get you a proposal in a week. You're like, I have no idea how I'm going to do that. I don't know how to nurse these babies yet. Crazy things are coming out of my body, but absolutely. I'll get on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts looking back on that time? How do you feel about it now? I look back at that time and think it was sort of like perfectly crazy. I had this energy that you have as a new mom where you're like just charged. And I don't know anything different. I don't know what it would have been like to take maternity leave because as I said, it wasn't an option. I had just gotten a salary, right? For this organization that I started with $11,000. Like that was a huge win to certainly say like, and I wouldn't have even let myself because I'm the one making those decisions. We don't have the kind of money to have paid me for maternity leave. It would have tanked the organization. And I couldn't turn it off. Like when it's your baby, you can't stop caring about it. You're the one who's caring and who's carrying it. I look back on it and I think it was insane. But it also pushed me to really see that I cared about this work. Because if I didn't care so much about it, I would have found a way to stop doing it. And instead, I just kept doubling down and been like, this is how to do it. This is how to do it better. And, you know, went through that journey. But there were certainly times when I'm like, man, 
I wish I had a job. I wish I had a job that someone else was in charge of and I could clock in and clock out of and all these other things. And instead, I had this passion project turned into a really viable organization and then other people counting on me and then other families counting on me. And, you know, you just keeps going. You said you started it in 2011 with $11,000 and then it took about three years to raise the money. How did you support yourself? Did you have a job on the side? What was it? Totally. So I had this amalgamated career that it seems really linear now, but it definitely didn't seem linear when I was putting it together. So especially when you do alternative careers, you can look back on it and suddenly things are in like this really lovely line because you played connect the dots, but that they sure as heck seem like dots when you were doing it. So at that point in 2011, so I was working as a freelance journalist and I did that to support myself for quite a bit of time and then also being a professional climber. So between those two things, that also led me to the work that Legato was. So I could build Legato while still writing all these different articles, putting these different projects together, climbing, and then eventually was able to step, like Legato became, like I said, like the first time in my life I've ever had a salary. That didn't happen until 2015. I was going to ask you, when did you give yourself a salary? 2015. Yes. That is one of the hardest things. We talk about money a lot in some of the groups that I'm in. We do an anonymous money survey and you get to see the spread where 20% of people aren't paying themselves anything, right? They're founders. They're still in those early trenches of like, I currently make zero dollars. This is really stressful. And all the way up to people who've been very successful who are now able to pay themselves quite a salary or they're in certain industries or fields. I'm always so fascinated about it because it's part of the story of what makes entrepreneurship possible. Yeah. How do we fund ourselves? How do we get there? Okay. You also said you were insatiable and that resonated with me. You really were. You felt even stronger into this mission. I remember being postpartum with my first and I think you and I are have kids very close in age. Were your kids were born in 2016? Yep. Yep. When? Like June, at the end of June. Oh, mine is May. Yeah, we're the same. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, except you had two. Eh. We're not the same. Details. We're similar. Yes. <laughs> I think this is something that's so phenomenally difficult to communicate to people. But I remember being postpartum and I had so many ice packs. Like it was a challenging delivery. I could barely walk and move. But I, chose to have the house be a complete disaster because I didn't care. And I stopped showering because I didn't care. And I smelled terrible because I wanted to write, because I had this hunger to write. And so I was working on a book proposal when he was six weeks old. And I was still wearing those Depends diapers and like bleeding and all the stuff. And it's really hard to communicate to people like, there are some things I'm still doing. Like, insatiable. I love that word. Insatiable person because I care so much about this and that's my weird. That's me. Yeah. I mean, that was this thing for me that I was reckoning with because it wasn't just that I had to work. It's that I wanted to work. Right. And it's like that combination. That's part of the insatiability. It's like, like oh, I don't want to just clock in, clock out. I want to drive this thing. I want to try new things. I want to make it better, stronger, more impactful. I want to be challenged in this and I want to be a mom. So how the heck do I do this? And in a field that doesn't even exist, I was trying to develop this thing and saying, wait, actually conservation is not the field I want to be. And it's not development. This is a new space. This is like creating thriving futures. This is backstopping indigenous and local communities to do this in this very different way around legacy. And 
oh, Micah, just keep making it harder and harder and harder. But with every turn that made it harder and harder, it made it more important because it was like, yeah, this is it. This is the stuff. But you're setting yourself up for something that's complicated and takes a lot of grit and takes a lot of time. You know, and then you use your best mental resources figuring out how your kid's nap schedule is going to work that day when you're trying to sleep train them. And you think, okay, now I'm going to go from that into this high functioning, high profile thing and have a meeting with people and try to have like pitch fest on your Skype call because it was before we all zoomed and you're like, ah, I kind of botched that one. I grew up with parents who were passionate about their careers. So that was not foreign to me. And I also chose to stay working at home which was this way where I could stay connected to my kiddos. So I would nurse them for their naps and I would be with them and then I would cruise up and get work done. And I knew that it was making my brain hurt. I'm like, this will give me more time with them. And then that way, the time that I wasn't with them was when I could go climbing or when I was going and getting exercise so that it wasn't this additional time away from them, if that makes sense. Like I kind of played this game with like how you amalgamate time but also knowing that I was the one taking the hit for it. I was very scattered and like in these chunks of time. And, and then your kids start learning that like they can nurse for an hour because then you stay there and you're like, absolutely, I'm going to stay here because that's <laughs> yes, totally. who I was, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. This whole conversation, I think what you touch on too so beautifully is like there's so much nuance because I remember one woman emailing me and just being like, can you talk about the difference between an entrepreneur that has like three years under their belt versus one versus starting a business versus five? And I was like, yeah, these are all different. Every single path is different. It depends where you are. It depends how many clients you have. It depends on what you're doing. And so navigating that with such specificity and figuring out like what works for me. Is it nursing my kids? Do I have to leave the house? Climbing is important to me. Where am I going to do that? When am I going to do that? I want to ask you about what didn't work or rather what changed. Because to me, when you become a parent, there's so many things about work that no longer work. Part of the grief of becoming a parent is that there's a lot of loss of who you used to be, what things that used to work, like all of this different stuff that changes. And I'm just curious from your perspective, what changed? What got better? But how was your work impacted? What changed? Something I talk about in the book, because there are these moments, the change would happen or I'd recognize the change. Like when there was a big moment for our work in Mozambique and something got a little bit off kilter and I'm like starting to look for a plane ticket, literally like typing in, trying to figure out how soon I can get to Mozambique so I can be part of helping fix it. And then realizing that I can't go and realizing that that's not who I am anymore. I have these kiddos and that we don't have the structure and we don't have the childcare and someone else has to, and it's just this huge morning. And seeing my, on the one hand, being so proud of my team and inspired by my team and starting to feel jealous of them because they're the ones who get to go experience those things. And I would like tee up these great opportunities and be like, well, have a great time. I hope it all goes well. And remember to send me a WhatsApp because here I am over here. That was really hard. And it was really hard. It was good. I mean, you can also say, well, that's a great thing. I think like some of the benefits is that people ask me all the time, they're like, well, you, you know, you run this organization that works in Mozambique, Kenya, and Peru. How often are you there? And I'm like, no, my team's there all the time. I travel to those locations twice a year. And I do that because I have a team that crushes it and I can count on them because I had to start counting on them. I had to go from being the founder that is there at every single moment for every critical decision leading the way to saying, nope, I'm actually not the one who's there in person. 
And it forced me into that in a way that's been really beneficial, better for the carbon footprint of what like Legato's creating and better for the autonomy and leadership in my team long-term too. But it was soul-breaking to not be able to, I mean, part of this work was created with that spirit of like can do, right? And can do happens when you're actually doing, not when you're like pushing paper. And there were times where I'm like, oh my gosh, I am a glorified paper pusher. And I started this organization to do anything but that. But what I do is like respond to emails and make sure financial reports are turned in and good heavens, no, this is not who I want to be. And I think it's saying like, how do you become, you know, that was happening at the same time that, as I said, my team's capacity was really upscaling. How do you become the founder and then the director, but still maintain the parts of yourself that drive you and brought you into that organization in in the first place? Right. Five years in, a lot of founders will be like, do I even like my job anymore? Right. I've created this thing. And for many reasons, right? You're limited because you can't get on the plane now. Depending on the context, it can be so hard. Did anything else change about how you work? Did you get feedback from your team? Frustrating moments, challenging moments? I mean, I would say that's the biggest way that things change, to be honest. Well, I would say the other thing that shifted was how much I brought humanity into my team because I was there every step of the way as me and as a mom with these young kids. And I mean, I've always been a very emotional leader. Everybody who's worked with me is like, oh, she's a total crier, right? And it's like, I thank people and I get super teary about it, right? I'm like, this is who I am. I mean, the way our work is centered around legacy, like it's a very personal culture. And that's something that we have not only with our team, but with all of our partners that we have. But that increased when I became a mom and the humility increased. And because you're kind of like inviting people to be on that same journey with you and to be very much like on their personal journey because I did not divorce those two things because I couldn't and continue to steer the ship. Whew. And now tell me about what changed in a good way. Like what were some of the positive shifts in being a founder and a mom? The positive shifts were those moments of realizing that there is choice. It's this irony, right? Like if you're the founder of something and you're doing this new venture, it was based on kind of like making it up in front of you. But at a certain point, it feels like there is no more choice because you have to follow these next steps to get to the next round of funding. You feel really locked in to this thing that you did that gave you freedom. And I think for me, one of the changes was to realize that we are at the stage we are now, but there is still choice. There's still choice for me. There's choice for like, who is that team that's around me? Who is the senior team that's around me? And knowing that when I'm starting to feel constrained, it's because I have taken too much choice out of the system. And so what's my job to bring that choice back in? And I think that I learned that in the past couple of years, because for me to work this hard and to care this much, it better be worth it to have this time be away from my kiddos because it's more, it's more than me just clocking in. Not only hours wise, it's more mental load on me. I really try to ask myself, like, is this worth it? Am I doing something that I still believe is fundamentally true to my DNA and that I wake up every day and I'm proud of? And I think it drives me more and also drives me to figure out how to do with better boundaries. Yes, absolutely. It's that heart, the heart at the center and really being like, 
am I still going in the direction I want to go? Does this still matter? Is it so still deeply rooted? And if we veer it off course, do I still have the choice, the ability to come back to what it is that drives me? Tell us about where you are today. The other thing I'd say is that I like to think that I'm better at having boundaries, but I will tell you that I think when you are a founder, there is a limit to your boundary because you will always be the person who stays up late or who gets up early to solve something, something that turns the key. And I'm like, I'm the only one who can do this. And there's not a question. I do it. I don't say, oh, well, I wasn't going to do that this week, or I have other priorities. I just sort of like push things out of the way and make it happen. So I'm curious to see when and if that can change. And I think that has to also do with who our team is and where we're at in a funding standpoint to build that team. Yeah, that's so interesting. I have learned so much in my own journey how critical like the mental health and the wellness of the founder is because if you lose yourself, it gets a lot harder to do the thing you have to do. Stay up late to finish the tasks. The buck stops with you. You know, a lot of times people email and they're like, oh, this thing is broken on your website. Have your web person fix it. Oh and I'm God. like, that's <laughs> me. You know, <laughs> that's still me. Hold on. Let me move to my other desk and fix that. I've got a small team of five contractors. Newsflash, I know that, you know, having a podcast can seem like a really big deal, but we're still a small team. And so it's really interesting. You're like, that's going to be broken until someone fixes it. And I better get out of bed and go fix it. <laughs> oh, I could talk to you more about boundaries, honestly, about all of this. If you could go back and talk to a founder mom, you know, someone who is just finding out that they're going to add a kid to their family or they're just figuring out they're pregnant or they've just had a baby. What advice, what words of encouragement would you give them? Oh, if you can get a number two, right away, find a great number two and prioritize having a partner at that level, even if it means restructuring things financially. Because having someone who you can work with intimately while you're going through what you're about to embark on, I think could be life-changing. I've had different people in that role for me, sometimes without them not knowing they were in that role <laughs> or me not being aware of it. But I wish I'd done that sooner. And I'd wish I'd had that vision, right? To say, actually, this is the thing that if I can share this task and share some of the brain, like share what it means to hold the organization on all these levels, then you can send that person the note that says, can you fix the website? But if you don't have that, you will always be that person when you're also trying to grow a whole nother family slash foundation in your belly and beyond. Mm, like a partner at work or a number two, like what does that mean to you? What does that look like in the different iterations? It's this phrase that maybe I just have, I use it with a bunch of other founders and social entrepreneurship. Who's the number two and what are they doing? And that doesn't mean a co-founder, but just like literally having someone who is at this level where they're really operating on all spaces and then having conversations with them to like give them more of the agency and ownership and give yourself a bounce board. If you do that, then I feel like they can take those things and run with them versus always feeling like they're on top of you. I would say that for any founder at any stage, we all need that partner and that really big thought partner. And too often, that's the last position that we fill, or that's the first position to go if things get stressful, right? And it's like, well, I don't need that because that duplicates things and that replicates things. But it kind of goes back to your piece about 
what is the mental health? How are you not holding this all on your shoulders? Can you elevate someone in your team to be that person who you can talk to about everything? Because you need it. Like you need a work spouse. Yes. Ooh, reminding me one of the things in the first year or two is I just had a friend who was building her own company, but we were both solo. And so we would talk to each other almost every week. And every Monday it was like, what are you doing this week? Right. And if we had a sticky challenge, getting to talk about it with someone, that intellectual sparring partner, someone who can hold the big idea. It's a skill. It's hard to find. It's a total skill and it's a relationship to be developed. But that would be, it's like, try to find this. And if you can't find it this year, find it next year. But be on the hunt for this person for you or in your organization because it'll make the world a difference. Yes, it will. Oh, that is such good advice. The message of this podcast is your feelings are totally valid. Every single one of them, right? All of them. And being a founder mom, whew, wild ride. You got to find your friends. There's your summary. Find your friends. That's our summary. <laughs> yes. Your feelings are totally valid. Find a friend that you can be like, I need five minutes. Do you need those friends? Or you can be like, I just can't right now. Yeah. And then make sure you start grounding and make sure you ground your <laughs> So, <laughs> Yeah, stick it into the ground. <laughs> Maybe that's why I'm obsessively gardening right now. I don't know. Okay. So where can people find out about you? Where's your book? And where are you on the interwebs if they want to say hi? Yeah. So the book is more life on the edge of adventure and motherhood and it's out everywhere. And the audio book will be out soon too. You can find me at Micah Burhart on Instagram and my website is MicahBurhart.com. And you can find out more about Legato at LegatoInitiative.org. That is so cool. And we will put all those links in the show notes. They'll be available on our website and in most players, if you just click through the show notes, it'll be right there. Thank you. Thank you for spending time. That was really fun and a total pleasure as a way to end my week. Thanks, Sarah. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter over at They Got Acquired. You can sign up for their newsletter at theygotacquired.com slash newsletter. It is a website and a company that's going to teach you everything you need to know about selling a business from how to find a buyer to what to expect during the sales process and how to navigate your life after the sale. What do you do after you sell a business? Personally, I've never been someone who's thinking about selling a business. I'm in a different place in my career and my life, but I love learning about it because it opens my brains to all sorts of possibilities. When you know more about how businesses work, how they're sold, who's buying them, and what you need to do to set up a business for sale, you can get better at building businesses, you can get better at setting it up from the beginning, you get better at understanding the market. Gosh, there's just so much I have learned from reading this newsletter. Just go to theygotacquired.com slash newsletter. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. It is a pleasure to be in conversation with you. You can find out more about everything we talked about and all of the show notes here on your podcast player, or you can head to our website, startupparent.com. I want to give another shout out to all of our amazing sponsors who help make this show possible. We are so grateful to get to work with you and partner with so many wonderful companies and organizations that are dedicated to making life better for entrepreneurs, female founders, and working parents. If you are interested in sponsoring the show and partnering with us, then head to startupparent.com slash sponsor, and you can send a note to our sponsorship team. 
Did you know that we have a new Substack and we have a secret podcast? Oh, yes, we do. Head to Startup Parents Substack. The link is startupparent.substack.com. I'll put the link in the show notes and check out our secret podcast. When you become a paid backer, when you upgrade your subscription and you join our community, you get lots of perks for being a community member. For our paid backers, I host a monthly private podcast where I dig into the nitty gritty of business building and parenting and everything in between. Listeners and readers get to submit questions, then I pick one or two each month and we dive deep into it. In addition, for our paid backers, we host our Startup Parent Monthly Book Club. This is where we get to talk about interesting books with other smart and interesting and kind people. And I run book club a little bit differently. You can read the book if you have time, but chances are you don't always have time to read the book. So the way I host book club is that anyone can join whether or not you've read the book because I give you a summary of it up at the beginning and then I frame up four questions from the book that we can talk about and you'll always be in rooms with other people that have read the book so we can share knowledge and wisdom. The purpose of book club is to have rich and interesting and insightful conversations not to judge you on whether or not you had a chance to read a book. So our secret podcast and our private book club those are just two of the perks that we offer for people who become community members and that's not all. I love getting to say that phrase. That's not all. There are actually a lot of other perks, and I'm going to let you discover them when you go to our Substack. Last but not least, if you liked this episode, I would be grateful if you would leave us a review. It means a lot to the show, and it helps other people find us. So definitely leave a review. I read every single one of them, and I'm so grateful when I see your name in my inbox and when I see that people are leaving more reviews. So thank you for doing that. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here, and I will see you on the next episode.